Hello, and welcome to Blue Rain Gallery Podcast. I'm Leroy Garcia. Today in our studio, we are sitting down with a very special guest, a good friend in David Valdez. Welcome, David. Thank you, thank you. I'd like to start off by um, talking about how I met David, uh, which is kind of a, a fun little story. Uh, when I first met David, I didn't know who he was at all. Uh, but every now and then, uh, a local celebrity who's actually a national celebrity would come into my gallery, and he'd sit down at the desk and start talking, and talk about kachinas or art a little bit. And this Chicano guy would come in and kind of hover in the background and just in awe of the art. And I, I had a few conversations with him. And um, that was David Valdez, and, uh, who was hovering there in the background, checking out all the art. I could tell right off the bat he was an art appreciator. Um, his friend who he was with was Dennis Hopper. And uh, David had a long-standing uh, friendship with, the, with Dennis Hopper. Um, it wasn't until the LA Art Show, I think that was in 1995, going back, that I had met uh, David. Uh, ten years passed or so, 2007, uh, LA Art Show, uh, David Valdez comes up to me and he says, Hey, Leroy, do you remember me? And I'm like, I remember your face. You used to come in with Dennis Hopper and, and visit the gallery. And he's like, yeah, yeah, uh, well, I'm David Valdez. And so I'm like, okay. Um, I went home at that night and I googled David Valdez and what do you think I found? <laughs> I didn't realize what you were doing for a living. I just knew you were huh. friend with David and uh, David is a, a movie producer in, in Hollywood and he's uh, actually a long list of movies and productions that he's been involved with. Uh, we'll save those stories for another time because those could go a long ways. Um, but today we're here because in 2007, as he reintroduced himself to me, we had a great conversation about an artist that, that David really is fond of. And that artist was his uncle, Alberto Valdez. And uh, today we're here to talk about Alberto. Alberto uh, passed away in 1998. And uh, he was a painter that painted for, well, I'll let David tell, me, tell us how long, but he um, apparently never sold his work on the open market. Mm -hmm. And uh, so David uh, inherited all of the paintings from his uncle's estate, and they're beautiful. Um, so, David, introduce your uncle to us, and let's, let's hear his story. Okay, well, thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to do this. It's, uh, it's something that, um, I don't think I ever told you this, so it's something I had actually promised my dad uh, oh. on his deathbed, actually. Oh, wow. And he said, if you can do me one favor, it's to try to get my brother's art acknowledged. And because those of us in the family really believed in it. But again, like you were saying, he was the quintessential artist. He, he didn't want to sell his art. Luckily, he didn't need to. You know, he had a modest income doing commercial art, but he, it was enough to take care of him and, his, and my grandparents because they all lived together. My, my uncle was a caretaker, a caregiver. So, you know, um, I guess I should back up and tell you what I know of him because now I kind of kick myself saying why didn't I ask more questions and I was just at the time I was young and you know they say youth is wasted on the young and I was just oblivious to the fact that I was surrounded by this great art in all of our houses and it was my uncles and I just kind of thought everybody's uncle that you know they, they were artists 
That's and nice. uh, you know, not true. And I'm I'm looking at some of the paintings just behind you right now. And he went through these phases and these stages. And then the next phase would be something that was diametrically opposite of what he had just spent two or three years doing. You know, so we would we would change the the paintings in our houses and. Uh, uh, with my grandparents and our, you know, the house that I grew up in, and uh, we just really, really enjoyed it. But he was, um, he, he, he didn't sell his art, didn't want to exhibit his art. If he, if he liked you, he would, he would give you a painting if you showed some interest in a painting. But those were usually family friends or, um, or, or friends of mine that would come over. And I think since. In his life, he, as you said, he died in 1998, and I think in the 90s when I started uh, adorning my own houses with his art, and I would have people coming over for meetings or whatnot. This was way before COVID, but we did have, you know, I took meetings a lot of times at my houses, and a lot of people would comment on the art. I knew that they were special paintings, and that they needed the kind of attention that my father had, had asked me to try to provide. And so, but I had no idea on how to do it. And, uh, you know, when Dennis, uh, you know, he and I used to come to Santa Fe and Taos, and uh, we were trying to get a movie off the ground at the time. But he was an art lover, and he gave me a whole new perspective on art. And he was very interested in my uncle's art. And he said, you've got to promote it. You've got to market it. And, you know, in the movie business, it's hard enough just trying to market and promote your own movies, yes. let alone going into a, a, another business that you know nothing about and that's why when we crossed paths I said do you think you could help me with this art and you responded to it you know you liked what you saw but he was um, you, you know he was a self-taught artist he took no formal training that I know of I, he was born in 1918 so he had 80 years in this life that's the same year as my grandfather really <laughs> oh really yeah 1918 he was born in El Paso my uh, my grandparents had come from Mexico City and uh, my uncle was born in El Paso my dad uh, two years younger than my uncle was born in Los Angeles so the whole family moved to LA but um, and, and one of the earliest paintings I have of him is one that stills in my house. It's uh, you know a, a Mexican boy pulling out his pockets and he doesn't have a penny to his name, you know. And he that's painted, a good starting point, isn't it? And he painted that when he was like 15. Wow. And I tell you, I, I found it when I was cleaning out all of his stuff, and I think that's one of the few that's dated, mm -hmm. and that I hung that in the door. And I get so many compliments or you know people notice that painting even though it's just a very small you know five by seven inch painting um, but I think one of the most uh, I, I know my uncle wanted to be an artist he as I said he didn't really study it he was a commercial artist in Los Angeles he did work for the studios I found you know he didn't really talk about it but I was kind of surprised that you know, after he died, I found uh, evidence that he'd worked at 20th Century Fox and Paramount Pictures, and I found one of his early watercolors was an old Western set that it, he, I, I don't think he was an art director or a production designer, I think he was just an artist that, you know, somebody had told him to come up with an idea for a Western town. But he, he clearly, as a young boy, I can remember that most of the art he was producing was commercial art. We would drive down the Interstate 5 in Los Angeles, and my dad would say, you know, look at that billboard. That's, <laughs> that's Tio Alberto. That's your Tio Alberto, yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I, would see, I was exposed to his art that way, and also because he would do a lot of commercial art for, like, rods and reels, and so the, the best... Uh, reel at the time when I was a kid was a Garcia reel. No, oh, nice. I'm sure no connection to you. 
but it was and and I was always the recipient of all the products that he was given to you know to illustrate. Um, so he did magazines and he you know um, as I said billboards and uh, commissions. But he was freelance, you know. He his whole life he was truly. But in the meantime, he had a, a desire to really start doing these kinds of paintings. And it really wasn't until the 50s, so you know, his mid 40s. And one of the thing he, things he did tell me, because he was uh, somewhat of a recluse, you know, he, um, when he got divorced in the mid 50s, he moved back for a, a week or two with my grandparents and ended up taking care of them for their whole life in, uh, in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. And he, um, he, 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 everything, you brought things into that house. He didn't really go out and, you know, and every, his studio was everything. He had a studio at his house where he would do the odd commercial job, but he would also start doing his canvases and his, and, and painting on masonite, start experimenting. And I think, you know, some of the strong influences in his life was, uh, you know, that era, that generation fought in the world war and my uncle and my dad, uh, my dad went to the South Pacific. My uncle fought in Europe, and he was what he came back with. Um, you know, a lot of people. My dad never talked about the war, but my uncle came back, and he was quite animated because he was both in Rome and Paris, mm -hmm. and he was really affected by the the public art, the fountains, the, the it's all the, over. Yeah, you mm -hmm. can't go anywhere, even in wartime, I guess, and not have to acknowledge this. The, the beauty that's all around you. So after, I, I know in the 50s there was, and again after he died, I had no idea that he had hundreds of books on artists. Mm -hmm. And even though he was somewhat cut off from, uh, you know, this was way before internet, it's interesting, he subscribed to a, a plethora of magazines and most of them European magazines that had all the, the painters. And if you went to his studio, he would have tacked up, you know, uh, magazine pages ripped out. And there was always the Picasso. Picasso, you know, the Cubist influence was very big. And he was he loved Paul Clay and he loved Kandinsky. And there were some of these people that, you know, were always some of those magazine pages were up there for years. But but he did rotate them. And so he was he he was self-taught, but he was sort of universally uh, learned through all of these publications he was getting. And, uh, and like I said, after he died, I had no idea he had you know, a couple hundred books on, on artists. And some of them were, you know, if you look at his art, I'm sure the color kind of strikes you first and foremost. And you know, that's very, you know, I think the, even though he was born here in El Paso, it's kind of that Mexican Tamayo, mm -hmm. Rufino Tamayo. And he, he mentioned Tamayo often, and I, I, I can't remember any Tamayo prints or anything in the house. I think you might have liked just the rawness of Tamayo. I mean, Tamayo's stuff, I was looking at it in, in preparation for this, and I was uh, really um, impressed by the, the rawness of Tamayo, but the fact that he got it uh, and connected to it, that's pretty cool. The other thing I wanted to say, and we, we were talking about this earlier, was uh, an artist will develop a home run piece and then the career is based on the home run piece and then the, the career fades. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if your uncle had been a commercial success, uh, I think he'd have followed the same path because I see constant evolution in what he was doing. And you mentioned even with the color palette, the gradations of color in, in, in his palette. 
when you look at the paintings behind you uh, or in back of me, you see all kinds of variants in light shades fading mm -hmm. or getting brighter. Uh, he's, he's genius. He's really good at what he's doing. His day was kind of structured the same every day. And he would get up and always get up around 5 o'clock in the morning to get the first light in his studio. His studio had was uh, two of the four sides were just windows. Mm -hmm. And he would have that. And um, he, would, uh, he would paint until about 10 or 11. And then he would eat breakfast. And then he would start sketching in the living room what he was going to do the next day. Uh, and that was always black and white. I have all those sketches. So for most of the canvas he's done, I actually have the sketch that accompanies it. Wow. You know, that, where he would spend the early afternoon. And then later in the afternoon, he was, always, he was an avid reader. He'd read a lot of books. He loved movies. He'd love to watch movies. And, uh, and then it would start again the next day. But, his, you know, his saying, he said it quite, quite a lot, was, Mi vida es... Uh, mi arte, my life is my art, yeah. and um, it was. I always one of the kicks we got. Uh, I was telling my wife about this yesterday. One of the great gratifying experiences we had while he was alive is he he knew that I was trying to. I wanted to catalog and archive his art instead of just being on one of those trays that they have and they you know a big piece of furniture with all these trays that you pull out printers mm -hmm. and and he had a couple of those filled with paintings but i wanted to start cataloging them and so after i, I guess it was around um the mid 80s late 80s i started after i finished a movie i would hire this still photographer to come over and shoot 20 or 30 paintings so I could start archiving them. And, and then I could ask him later, like, when was it painted? Why did you paint it? And, you know, and so I have some of those stories I still remember. Oh, nice. Yeah. How many, how many paintings are in the collection? I'd say 200. 200. I would yeah. say, you know, a couple hundred at least. And, and so you, you've, you've uh, fulfilled uh, or are fulfilling what your dad had asked you. And um, you've, you've done more than that just from just working with Blue Rain. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the, where his work is at in museums. Interestingly enough, the, the, for when I first started promoting the work, the people that responded to it were curators or people who worked at museums. And the first show was in 2010, I believe. It was called Pacific Standard Time, PST. And that was, there were at like, 50 venues in Los Angeles, different kind of arts, and, and some of the unknown Latino artists were being featured at the Autry Museum, uh, right outside of Griffith Park there, and his work was chosen, and it was nice because we got to exhibit 20 paintings, oh, nice. and out of the 20, you know, one day I got a call from somebody from the Smithsonian uh, Museum who was interested in obtaining uh, a painting. Anyway, she came over, and, we, and they ended up getting three of them. Uh, and that was that was like the first sale or or you know and that I felt wow this is good you know I don't know much that's about a, the Smithsonian that's not a sale that's an acquisition you right? know yeah yeah but I so it, it it gave me it reinforced the feeling that I had that this was art that needed to be enjoyed by more people than just my family yeah. And so, so that was the first one. And then at that same show in 2010, there was a gentleman who came to the show who uh, is a curator for a museum in Utah, the uh, Nora Eccles Museum. Mm -hmm. And he purchased two, two of the paintings for that. So it was, and, and by the way, you know, the Pacific Standard Time exhibition wasn't an exhibition to sell art. It was an exhibition to expose unknown Latino artists to 
LA patrons. Right. And so, um, so after that, I, I think after that we got in touch and you started representing uh, my uncle's collection. Yeah. Well, those are important uh, acquisitions or uh, museums to acquire uh, and record that history because he's an important uh, Latino artist. Um, and, and we're grateful that you are exposing this and working with Blue Rain. Yeah. We're very honored to, to do this. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. Yeah. You know? there's, there's one last story that I, I didn't finish. Oh, I was just yeah. going to tell you, and it was just one of the most gratifying things while he was alive. The last 10 years, he would come over for dinner on Christmas Day. And um, Christmas Day, we would have not just family, but friends. And it was, it's always a big dinner. And after dinner, the first year, I started showing his slides of the, I told you that we would, I would hired a still photographer to come in and take 20 or 30 slides. So the first year we, you know, they were Kodachrome and I would have a slideshow. And it was really kind of great because nice. everybody huddled together in the living room, you know, kind of like a slumber party. And every, and the oohs and the ahs and to hear, and the artist was right there and they would say, you know, there was an, inevitably the question, how long did that take? And the answer was always, 78 years or however old he was because he really felt that you know that's how long a painting takes it's a it's a manifestation of your life experiences and your life experiences aren't over a week or two and the practice 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 yeah yeah because you don't you don't get as good as he was without every day every day in his regimented plan that you you talked about and that that's a pretty cool story. Yeah. And I, I think that parallels a lot of artists, actually. And uh, that's, that's so wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming today. My pleasure. And uh, we'd like to encourage everybody to subscribe to Blue Rain Gallery Podcast on all the platforms from iTunes to Spotify and even on our own BlueRainGallery.com page. Uh, also, we'd like to encourage everybody to visit our other site, BlueRainPrintShop.com, where you can find art for everyday life. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you, Leroy. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh.